Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. We recorded this show about the American subculture known as furries quite a few years ago when the world was a different place. But it hasn't changed that much for people who call themselves furries. In fact, one of the reasons we're reviving the show this week is because a politician, a councilman in New Milford, was forced to resign from his post because it was discovered online that he was a furry. We're going to explain what that means in just a second. I should also say it's not 100 percent clear that he had to resign merely because he was a furry. There were some other things going on digitally that may have contributed to that. But it made us realize that we knew something that maybe you don't know, which is what a furry is and what people who do this, who live out that reality, say about themselves. So listen to this show and maybe you'll learn a little bit more. Hey, buddy. You feel like buying me a drink? Oh, my rabbit costume? Well, it's based on Heisenthal, my favorite character in Watership Down. She's the one who, hey, buddy, my eyes are up here. I hate it when dudes stare at my nipples. Granted, I have eight of them. Yes, I'm a furry, but that just means I'm part of a subculture that really appreciates the art of animal characters with anthropomorphic traits. It doesn't have very much to do with sex. In your case, it's not going to have anything to do with sex. But you can buy me that drink. Vodka and carrot juice. We call it a Harvey Hutchbanger. Get it? Harvey? Not much for jokes, are ya? Today's show is all about furries. And now, the guy who says his beaver costume is not a lifestyle choice, Colin McEnroe. No, it's actually a medical necessity. It's a prescription beaver suit. Uh, I'll, I'll tell you a little bit more about that later. So here's the thing. We're here to tell you about this uh, subculture known as furries. I think one of the many misconceptions about them is that they all wear costumes, which they don't. You're going to hear about some issues they've had with libraries. Apparently, they don't bring their, their books back on time. Uh, and, and we hope to hear from you out there, too. We also have some people from the community who are kind of listening in via phone, uh, and I think they'll be joining us on the air. I see a couple of calls going up on the board already. We have Robert Chiaroscuro Armstrong, a 20 years in furry fandom, and he serves on the Anthrocon Board of Directors. We'll tell you what that is. Stephanie Tabby-Wolf-Cruz, she's a freelance illustrator. Here with us also, Dr. Leslie Lostein, former director of psychology at the Institute of Living, a lecturer on law and psychiatry at Yale University. Les, Les Lostein, I will say, is the He's the reason I wore pantyhose for one whole day. That's an old story, though. If you want to know that story, you have to email me, Colin, C-O-L-I-N at WNPR.org. Bob Armstrong, I'm, I'm going to start with you. Just I think we need to define our terms here. And uh, as I said, I think most people, if either people have no idea. In fact, we sent some uh, people out, some of our ex- outstanding interns out. Uh, to find out if anybody had any idea about furries. And we'll, we'll, in just a second, we'll tell you what the, oh, they found out. Patrick, you don't have to play it yet, actually. All right, we don't have it. Oh, never mind. We didn't send it, turns out. Um, so Bob Armstrong, one of the things we did find out is there were some people who had no idea what we were talking about and another group of people who had a fairly crude, blunt idea of what we're talking about. So give us the nuanced version. Defining what furry is, if you ask 100 different furries, you'll get 100 definitions. The best way we can describe it is that a furry is someone who is a fan of anthropomorphic animals. That's a big term, which is why we say furries for short. Mm -hmm. A cartoon animal, a animal with human characteristics. A classic example is Bugs Bunny. Mm -hmm. Bugs Bunny 
occasionally wears clothes, he talks, he speaks, he interacts with humans. He is an anthropomorphic animal. And that's what furries are fans of. There's uh, a number of people in the fandom that wear costumes uh, known as fursuits. They're kind of the most visible thing in the way that uh, if you go to Disneyland, you'll spot the people who are dressed like Mickey and Cinderella. You don't pay quite as much attention to the, uh, to the folks serving you the burgers and the fries at the food stand or running the rides. Uh, the fursuiters are a very visible part of the fandom, but they only make up about 20% by uh, our best estimates. So, Stephanie, um, so you, you two are in that 80%, right? You are furries. You are fans of anthropomorphic representations of animals. You go to conventions and stuff like that about all this. But you don't own or wear fursuits. So if you're not going to do that, Stephanie, what form – did I just describe the form in which your furry activities – to take shape? I mean, basically going to conventions? and Or do you do online role-playing? Going or? to conventions is a big one. Uh, online role-playing is small in my life, but I know a lot of people in the fandom, are. that's a big part of it. I actually am an illustrator in the fandom. I draw comics, I draw various art, and post it online. And that's actually how I've met a lot of my friends, is through the art that I post online. And the art is a big part of the furry fandom as well. Does it seem to you like it's just fandom? I guess uh, I'm trying to think, you know, I mean, I like uh, the Lord of the Rings and stuff like that and everything. And, and uh, you like anthropomorphic representations of animals. This would include Puss in Boots and Kung Fu Panda and all this Bugs Bunny and stuff like that. Is it just being a fan or is there a deeper level of identification or, or blending of identity with that whole world than a typical fan of something else might have? I guess it probably has become that. I've been in the furry fandom for about 14 years now and it becomes it, and you start you meet all your friends through the fandom you meet you know you go to the conventions and meet up with people. The illustration is currently my actual career. So it mm. becomes a much bigger part of your life. Some people have a, it's a, a lot smaller part of their life. It's just a hobby. They're online once in a while. But a lot of folks, like me included, is you start doing it, you start drawing, you start making friends, and all of a sudden it's one of the biggest parts of your lives. Does it feel like it's a set of associations for you? Does it hark back to childhood? Is it remind you of when you had a certain kind of pet or is it just kind of a, a, a I mean I'll, I'll give it here's a nice sort of cross comparison thing so we've done a couple of shows about the aesthetic known as steampunk you know so steampunk is some kind of blending of kind of 19th century you know crypto Victorian iconography with slightly more futuristic things it's uh, I heard a guy say the other day on the radio that Abraham Lincoln isn't steampunk and a ray gun isn't steampunk but Abraham Lincoln with a ray gun is steampunk I don't know if that's quite right but but so there's there's an aesthetic and it's got a whole bunch of things that go with it kind of like furries I, I think it's got it's got movies it's got books it's got some costumes it's got it, are those the same thing or is furry is there a deeper psychological connection beyond the aesthetic from my point of view i've been drawing anthropomorphic animals since i could hold a pencil i was drawing them long before i was involved in the furry fandom mm. but your your comparison to steampunk is pretty accurate in my view of the fandom it's like yeah it's something cool to do on weekends it's something cool to help you get out of the house probably on some psychological level i it is something that harkens back to my childhood, but I've never, I don't really think about that when I'm sitting down to draw a comic with cartoon animals in it. Bob, yeah, so I've been watching your body language over there. You clearly have a lot you want to say about oh, this. Oh, yeah. There are a lot of uh, furries who have, over the years, the tale that a lot of them tell is, I was into cartoon animals, and I liked this, 
and I never knew there were other people like me. And then the big thing is they found the internet, they, they saw something online, maybe they saw a picture, maybe they saw a YouTube video of a convention, and they said, that's what I like. I'm certain there are people who are, can tell the same thing about anime fandoms or steampunk. A lot of furries, it's just something that's like, this is what I like, this is something I've been liking, now there's a name for it, now I found out about it. And yet, in ways that some of these other aesthetic subcultures don't get defined, you guys, for good or ill, I think I assume for ill, kind of have gotten defined at times in the mass media as as sort of freaky, you know, that uh, and you got CSI episodes where the whole thing like turns into a murder. You've got uh, 30 Rock, Drew Carey's show. There's, you know, sort of poking fun at the whole thing. There's there's a way in which you've been dragged into a place that a lot of other aesthetic fandoms, you know, that have a whole bunch of different manifestations haven't been dragged. So and, uh, do you have thoughts about why that would be? Well, there's two main reasons for that. One is it is the mass media and sensationalism sells a bit. By the time that furry fandom started getting large, which is the 1990s, Trekkies and such, the mass media knew what Trekkies were. They were, they were nerdy people that wore suits and costumes, and we knew what SCA fans were. They were people that wore that. They didn't know what furries were, mm-hmm. and they were trying to associate it with something, and the image of furry as a you know fetish thing popped up a bit. And this infamous CSI episode really popularized that in the mass media. Uh, There's been a couple other nice mass media. Uh, Back to You, a show set in Pittsburgh, which uh, mentioned Anthrocon by name, had had a much funnier portrayal of it. And the other thing that uh, started Furry a bit along that path is Furry has some of its roots in Southern California fandom. The first Furry convention was uh, Conference One. And there's a bit, a little bit of an East Coast, West Coast there. Conference was founded by a gay couple uh, who were a little more out and flamboyant than a lot of East Coast fans were. That sort of influenced the early development of the furry fandom, gave it a bit of a reputation. Uh, the foundings of Anthrocon and Further Confusion, the two largest conventions since then, very much said, that's not how we experienced the fandom. Let's step it back a bit. And between that and the CSI episode, there's been a little bit of that reputation, which I feel is undeserved. It does seem, though, and this will kind of segue nicely into maybe talking a little bit uh, to less about this, that you've got within this world, you know, that, uh, that furry is a big furry umbrella for talking about a lot of different things, um, for talking about people who just like these kinds of representations and, you know, uh, whether and it's who's afraid of Roger Rabbit and stuff like that, and just liking stuff like that, liking the aesthetic, liking the look, and 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 maybe uh, um, people who do some online role playing where there's they have an animal character and they're interacting with other animal characters and lots of different second lifey kind of ways, and then you've got uh, as we say the conventions you can go to and do kinds of various things. It it did seem in the reading and research that I did, and God knows I don't think there are a lot of really hard and fast figures about all this, that there's some percentage of people who do somehow or other link their sexual identity or a certain percentage of their sexual activities to this, you know, and, and you even look at the Wikipedia entry and there's some number that's, that's cited there from a study and who knows how high a number that is. But it does feel as though, whether it's a West Coast, East Coast thing or some other kind of thing, that there's some group of people 
who like to dress up in these animal costumes for reasons that have to do with their sexual identity. Fair? I'd say there's a certain percentage of that, but there's going to be a certain percentage of that in any sufficiently large group. One of the things that uh, rises up in this is the notion that uh, people confuse a lot the and and the while. To say that furries have sex is one thing, Mm -hmm. and to say that furries own fursuits is another. That's two separate things. It's not furries have sex while wearing fursuits. It's like, I have sex, and I own a motorcycle and ride my motorcycle. Mm -hmm. I don't have sex while riding the motorcycle. We it's, don't. We don't it, recommend that. No, no. It's I get. I get what you're saying. Uh, there's a lot of and while confusion on that. <laughs> okay, good way to put it. Les Lassine, over the years, you and I have had conversations about many things, including pantyhose. And I think one of the things that you sort of helped me understand is there are sometimes when people like something that that often does involve an item of clothing or a texture or a feeling. And that feeling isn't always necessarily a sexual feeling, although we might look at it that way. For example, one of the things that that one of the reasons I well, I guess it wasn't the reason, but the reason I was wearing pantyhose, I can't keep alluding to this and not explain it. It was like the anniversary of the invention of pantyhose, and I just figured I should I should see what it's like. But one thing you told me at the time was that there, you had treated people who men who wore pantyhose not be for a sexual reason, but because they liked something about it, right? Correct. Thank you for reminding me about my deep influence on your character. <laughs> and about You've influenced me in so many other ways. That's remembered. just the one that kind of jumps out. It's kind of exactly like what Bob's telling, <laughs> talking about is you know, an and while thing or whatever you were talking about. Actually, I wrote a paper on that that got published in Gender and Psychoanalysis that was uh, widely uh, uh, read and it surprised me. And it surprises me that you remember our conversation, but that's wonderful. <laughs> Some thoughts I have about this. I mean, if the poet Ovid was alive today, he'd be really happy because the metamorphosis that he wrote, uh, the shifting uh, between sets and boundaries between animal and human, between nature and animal and human, and that kind of combination of characteristics, I think it's deeply embedded in our psyche. It's embedded in our poetry, our literature, our art. One of the interesting things about the furries, uh, um, and I don't pretend to be an expert on this, but I've uh, had lots of conversations with people who've engaged in all kinds of um, behavior with clothing and with costumes and stuff, is that um, it's all about soft and furry. Mm. So it brings up uh, a, a sector of uh, the uh, community that gets interested in, the, um, in, in putting on things that, that go back to uh, transitional objects of childhood, that go back to stuffed toys, that um, really are uh, interesting cartoons and um, as opposed to, for example, some of the animation that we see with reptiles and warriors and dragons, where there's a kind of hard exoskeletal type structure to the um, uh, uh, costume that's um, uh, put on. But in here, the, the, the costume is all about the soft, the furry, and um, those issues that take us, I think, right back to the uh, unconscious memories that we have from our childhood. I mean, I remember and I have talked about this with my own children, not yet with my grandchildren, on the whole issue of um, uh, television cartoons and what influence they have because our first real objects uh, we spend most of our time with are, are television cartoons, much more time than with our parents. Mm-hmm. And so we, um, we take these cartoon-like characters into our lives and they, they form a blend of our uh, personality and our character. So. Um, I think it's about uh, costumes, it's about the texture, uh, it's about a lot of fun. Uh, that's a part of, I think, what um, 
chiaroscuro was uh, mentioning earlier. Well, I could also mention that uh, there are also scaly fans in the fandom. There are people who are very much into dragons. They don't have to, they don't have, to have their own conventions? No, they can come no, to your conventions? no. It's, uh, they can't be scalies? They well, have their own damn the, conventions. The, the folks who have their own conventions, very amusingly, are the uh, pony fans. There's a cartoon out presently on that note, uh, speaking of cartoons, called My Little Pony Friendship is Magic. Yeah. And it's had an amazing response on the Internet their convention held earlier this year had over 4,000 people. And these are adult fans of the show. I think some of that is a little bit of uh, what's, what's called the new authenticity, hmm. where people appreciate something that others are sort of amazed they appreciate, but they appreciate it without irony. Yeah. People have started watching this My Little Pony Friendship is Magic show. It has turned out not to be the horrible saccharine four seven-year-old girl's my Little Pony, they're amazed by it, and they enjoy it, and it harkens back to their childhood. So they're mining sense. it for deeper meaning? and, yeah. and they're, they're enjoying the show. Yeah. And Actually, when you started talking about the pony people, Stephanie did this kind of thing where she grabbed her chin <laughs> like, oh, no, he's talking about the pony people. <laughs> it's, uh. it's an amusing sort of spinoff of the furry fandom. All right, we got to grab a few phone calls here. Also, we got some of your friends uh, online here. Camo is uh, here. We'll get to him in just a second. And uh, Grubbs Grizzly out in California, speaking of the West Coast. Uh, these are some furries who do have suits. Uh, but we also just got uh, folks calling in here. We're going to uh, talk to John in Hartford. Hi, John. You're on the air. This is actually the first time that I uh, that I've I've heard of this subculture. But I, the experience that I I had, I a friend of mine asked me to uh, wear a bear costume for uh, the Strawberry Festival in, in um, South Windsor for his business. Mm -hmm. And as soon as I put the head on, basically I experienced where I turned into a different person. I was, there was a band there, I was dancing in, in front of the band, I was going up to people just, I, it was a complete change of personality that it was just unbelievable. Bob is nodding his head uh, frantically as you're saying this. So you're a furry and you don't know it. I, exactly. I'm like, hey, this is great. Yeah. <laughs> but it's just amazing that that it suddenly, by by putting that head on, I, it just completely changed my personality. And I was able to do things and act in ways that you always want to. You want to act silly and you want to act stupid and, and dance around like a fool, but you're too afraid to. Um, in public, and you put this head on, and suddenly you can be whoever you want. So every time, every year, I was like, "Hey, are you going to do the the bear costume again? I'll I'll do it." It actually got to the point at the end of the day, I had worn the suit, which it was in August. So I had worn the suit all day long, and I was about just about passed out from dehydration because I had worn the suit all day long. <laughs> That's an important thing to know. Yeah, see, if you if you were part of the free subculture, they would have told you about hydrating. <laughs> yep. you know, hydrating. If, for, so the, the suits are definitely heavy. Uh, someone makes the has made the comparison that wearing a fursuit is like wearing your sofa. Um, it's certainly a physical exertion. But this happens a lot with uh, a lot of fursuiters have the same experience. They put the head on and they assume a different identity. Uh, sometimes it evolves. Sometimes they have a very clear picture of what their personality is going to be in the suit. Other times it's very evolving. And it is a bit of that separation from yourself. You can be someone perhaps more extroverted, more friendly than you usually are. But I think that's just a lot of unlocking who you are in a sense. Well, you know, and I want to go to less on this in just a second. But before we do that, and I want to say, John, we're trying to have a show mascot 
it's called Scratchy, the Colin McEnroe Show Mountain Lion. And so you sound like the guy for the job somehow. So we may need to talk about that. We don't we don't really have the right costume. We get, the, we get the Greg's costume, which is not a mountain lion exactly. We're working on it anyway. So um, so I'm going to put you on hold and, you know, maybe you can talk to somebody. Wolfie will talk, <laughs> Wolfie will talk to you about becoming Scratchy, the Colin McEnroe Show Mountain Lion. We've got to go to break. But before we go to break, not break yet. Before we get to go to a break, let's, I just want to jump on what John said there because it seems like this is also going right up your alley here. This whole idea that outfits, clothes, you know, stuff that we can put on and take off allow us to accentuate certain parts of our personality that, that, that get buried otherwise. And it seems, this seems like a pretty consistent thread through all kinds of clothing-related subcultures. Absolutely. I mean – Role-playing is not just about verbal role-playing, but it's also about the costuming and the costuming part of it. And people in all uh, levels of um, relationships will get involved with um, role-playing various things. When we dress every day, we're putting on a costume. We're, we're putting on some clothing that's going to, in some way, accentuate wh- how we feel, how we feel about ourselves, what we want to portray. Certainly in the work that I've done in some of the more exotic fields in um, uh, transgenderism, transsexualism, transvestism, where costuming takes on a very different different role. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and in some cultures, it's outlawed. In some cultures, it's uh, permitted. But um, certainly, once we get into the role, it changes the self in many ways, for, in many different uh, forms for people. All right. We're going to take a little break. We're going to hear more from uh, Stephanie, uh, from Bob, from Les. We've also got some uh, people calling in from the furry community. That's what the show's about today. It's about furry fandom, which can take many forms. Their names are called They raise a pause about the cat Dolphin and dog, koala bear and hog The scent of the sister of her brother marsupial Their cousin called monotree Dead uncle Allotheria We're back. I hope you're getting the idea. Um, furries aren't some form of sexual deviance, which is not to say that furries don't ever incorporate that part of themselves into their sex lives. But we think they're controversial maybe for the wrong reasons. And we are trying to explain this to you because in a town in Connecticut, uh, a town councilman's involvement in the furry movement uh, contributed at least to his demise as a town councilman. So we decided to revive this show, which we did years ago, so maybe you could understand a little bit about it. Just to tell you kind of an interesting parenthetical story, which is that not too long after we did this show, we were doing a show about drive-in movies, and part of that was to go to a drive-in movie theater and and watch a movie. And as we did that, as we pulled our car in and kind of got ourselves organized, we look, looked across the little driveway and right behind us was a group of furries who decided to go to the drive-in together. And they weren't doing anything weird or horrible. They were just, you know, eating popcorn like everybody else. Uh, but we at least knew who and what they were. And after this show, I hope you will too. 
We're talking about furries, furry fandom. You may have uh, heard about this, read about this, or maybe you're new to it. Furries are people who really like anthropomorphic representations of animal characters. Sometimes this extends to um, having avatars online. Uh, who uh, who act out various things uh, in in kind of second life uh, universes. Sometimes it involves dressing up in actual fur costumes. You're going to be hearing from a couple of people uh, who do that in the next few minutes. Um, they have conventions, uh, and sometimes it's just kind of liking certain kinds of animal characters that who crop up in various kinds of mostly visually oriented fiction, whether it's uh, animated stuff or, or graphic novels. Or Stephanie, one thing you were saying during the break, I think this is kind of an uh, interesting point, because Les was talking before about sort of, you know, the kind of the other kinds of people that he's he's treated and, and, and written about who um, are engaging for different reasons in uh, for different reasons than, than furries typically are uh, in transgendered or transvestite uh, behavior. But you were sort of saying that in some ways, if the animal face you have is your truest self or a very true representation of yourself, it, it kind of makes it easier for everybody to accept other stuff about you. I'm probably not summarizing you, your comment. You got well. it pretty well. It's about since you're already wearing a mask online, you know, if you go on to say furry muck where it's a role playing uh, text game, basically, mm -hmm. and you you're going on and you're a dragon. You're already a dragon, so if you're a female dragon, even though you're a guy in person, you know, it's it's a lot easier for everyone to accept you. And the furry fandom is a really open and accepting fandom of gay, lesbian, transgenderism, because it doesn't matter who you are, you know, on the outside, as long as you can, you know, because you're truly expressing who you are on the inside. You know, who knows what happens if you, sh you show up at a Star Trek convention and you want to be a gay Wookiee. But in the furry <laughs> world, it's probably going to be your, people are going to be, you know, anyway, you're going to be welcome with open paws. Exactly. Um, are you actually a, so you are, are you like a wolf or something like that online? Uh, online, I draw myself as a cat wolf, a wolf with cat stripes. Yeah. See, that's a nice thing, too. You can be an animal that actually doesn't exist, right? Yep. yep. Yeah. There, are, there are a lot of uh, hybrids, a lot of uh, fictional species. Yeah. You know, people find something they like and they want to go it. Uh, my character, or as the term is known, fursona, mm -hmm. is a uh, mongoose. And uh, I've been playing him online for over 18 years. And people know me by him. I turn my head faster when people say chiaroscuro than I do Bob. It's just been after years and years of people saying that, greeting me at that at conventions. It's a part of who I am. Aren't the scaly people kind of afraid of you when you come over I, here? I, you, do you kill snakes as a mongoose? Do you do that? I only kill snakes on in specific times. Very specific you union rules. You have killed rule. snakes. You, very specific union rules for the uh, International Union of Mongoose, Mongooses, Meerkats, and Other Snake Killers, Local 304. I, I somehow or other think there actually may be something like that <laughs> online. Uh, or maybe he's joking. Hard to tell sometimes. I want to get to camo and grubs really quickly, but before we do that, a uh, quick conversation here with Tandem in Norwich. Hi, Tandem. What I wanted to know is if you wanted to ask a few questions to a furry that's been a, you know, around in the real world for a while. So, Well, yeah, we, and we do have some other people on hold right now who have been furries. So in what sense are you a furry in the real world? How, how is that true about you? Well, I mean, I've been up and down and all in, in and out. I mean, I've been pretty much anything. If you went online and you read any story about being a fur in a good sense, it's, I've gotten bad, I've gotten good. You know, any fur will deal with uh, a lot of roughness in their life. Mm -hmm. I've gotten a lot of people get, uh, that got in my face because of the fact that I'm fur. And yeah. uh, that's just not right, you know, and I wanted to 
I heard this, and I just, I'm like, oh, man, i got to call him up because... So we're going to come to this topic in just a second because there's been some questions uh, raised by, for example, libraries. Two libraries have kind of sort of, fum- in a very fumbling way, kind of tried to figure out whether they should have a policy that doesn't allow furries to be in the library. Uh, is that the kind of thing you're talking about, people getting in your face? The thing about the library, furries should be allowed anywhere. They're yeah. just like people. But to an exception, of course, because, I mean, when you're when you're being a fur, if you're wearing the whole fur suit, then you're covering your face, and it's kind of sketchy, and, you know, you're, anybody can cover their face and, you know, hold up the place or go take somebody or, you know what I mean? Because you're covering your face. Right. And that's how the normal public thinks. Oh, my God, he's covering his face. He's going to do something shifty, you know. But that's not how we are. Right. But you can't take the chances with normal people, and that's how they think, and we can't help it. But you got to ask. Just like that newscast a little while back about the girl in the library, I got all upset. You could have just asked her. They said, what are you doing here? And I'm like, oh, nothing. I'm a furry. I just thought I'd have fun. And she ended up getting in trouble because she was being herself in the library. I, I completely agree, Tandem. The, uh, the library thing, it was a very small thing, but it spawned a lot of discussion. And I agree that the fursuiter in question should have, you know, gone to the librarian. Librarians have a hard enough job on a regular basis keeping an eye on things, said, hi, I'm here, I have this costume, I'd like to go around, say hi to the kids, and it would have been utterly a non-issue. Abs- absolutely. A lot of communication and a lot of just clear presentation for fursuiters, especially in public, where they're going to encounter a public that doesn't know what's going on, is essential. It makes a very positive public impression if you go explain what's going on. People go, oh, that's cool. I always say this happened at the Enfield Public Library. As we know from the past three or four years of Connecticut history, every single odd cultural issue finds its way to Enfield sooner or later. Um, it's just like everything's up there. So, uh, And then Portland started thinking maybe they should have a policy and stuff like that. And, and maybe in a second we can come back to, to less and sort of talk a little bit about how, from a clinician's point of view how, how you fit lifestyles like this into various parts of society. But before we do this, we get some people who have kind of been on hold for a while, I guess kind of listening to the conversation. Out in California, we do have Grubbs Grizzly, who uh, is a furry and a furry, I believe, with an actual suit. And uh, so Grubbs, tell us so far as you've been listening – what are we missing? What what have you been scratching with your uh, bear paws on a on a pad of paper that you you think we we ought to get to? I think uh, again the, the focus is a lot on the fursuits. and as you mentioned at the beginning of your show, only one in five furries actually has a full or partial suit. And mm-hmm. I wish we get a little bit more into the fiction and the art of it and uh, all that sort of thing that goes along with it too. Well, yeah, we, we should talk to Stephanie a little bit more about that. I do want to mention, we were talking about this off the air, uh, one of the furry organizations gives out these things called the Ursa Major Awards, which are for accomplishment in these areas, right? whether it's animation, graphic novels, uh, regular kinds of fiction, uh, all that kind of stuff, uh, movies. So, you know, it is, it is. I mean, I think, you know, their grubs, I think the, the comparison to steampunk is apt. You know, it's, it's steampunk. A lot. Of, I've been to steampunk conventions where people really are dressed up pretty outlandishly. But it's also just liking a certain kind of thing, a certain kind of fiction, a certain kind of movie. So, it's kind of, so I mean, I think I think it's sort of apt there. Could you just quickly tell us? You, you do. I mean, I know you're part of the one in five. And so, what is it that you? I assume you dress up as a bear. That's my keen journalist instinct telling me that you're dressing up as a bear. Correct. Yes, I do. Uh, I have a fursuit made by uh, a maker uh, named uh, Beast Cub in Sacramento. And uh, I love it because it's really an art form, and they've gotten more and more elaborate, and people got more and more skilled uh, over time. And there's, 
you know, people who spend two, three, four, upwards of $7,000 on them, uh, they get, you know, some of them have animatronics and lights and wings that move if you're a dragon and ears that move. It, it's really gotten quite stunning over the years. And watching a fursuit parade at one of these conventions is, you know, to me, better than the uh, electric light parade at Disneyland, which I guess they canceled, actually. But that sort of thing, you know, it's just a, it's just a lot of fun. I feel like it must be hot. Is it hot inside there? Oh, yeah. Um, I've got what they're called cooling vests, um, oh. which I, I got a little while ago. When I first had my fursuit, I didn't have them, and I really regretted it. Um, that allows me to stay in the fursuit for about two hours before I get um, pretty uncomfortable, and I really need to get out of it and cool off. And is it heavy? Does it physically, how many pounds are you carrying there? I've never weighed it, but mine weighs more than uh, some of them because I'm not a really beefy guy, but my bear persona is, and I've got not only the fur over it, I'm also wearing, um, well, imagine this, I'm wearing a um, cooling vest, I'm wearing a Lycra suit, I'm wearing uh, a sumo padded suit and then i'm wearing the fur over it so i'm basically walking around like the michigan um michelin man yeah this is like a workout basically just doing this uh it sounds uh, absolutely i bring i take water with me i've got a a fan built into my head to cool me off and i've got the cooling vest it's you really have to be committed to be a fursuiter because it's not comfortable but it's a hell of a lot of fun do you feel are you this is a serious question. Are you a cute grizzly bear, or are, is there anything about you that's kind of like, do you feel a little bit stronger and more in control of your environment because you're a big grizzly bear? I think it's the same phenomenon that you see with the actor or actress when they're on stage playing a character. They feel more open, and that's certainly the case with me. I mean, uh, I was talking to your producer before the show, and I can go in front of an audience and give a speech about something you know that I do in my workplace, but I, I I'm too shy to perform on stage. But when I wear uh, Grubbs Grizzly, uh, I perform uh, live. I did the Bared Necessities from the Jungle Book and did a little show and you know just went all out. It, you know I do feel more in character and more uh, outgoing when I do that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you sing the song Bare Necessities from that show That's from the Jungle you, Book. Yeah. yeah. You know the blue song. Yeah. No, I know the song. Uh, further, uh, uh, the, the the convention in Novi, Michigan. Uh, so your furry connection north, that would be. Yeah. You're, perf- you're yeah. performing furry and you you sing. But let me just, I guess the question I was asking, if I saw you in your costume, would mm-hmm. I be more apt to want to hug you or cower before your <laughs> grisly mightiness? <laughs> uh, hopefully you'd want to hug me. Okay, uh, so it's, it's more that. That's, that's sort of just, because I, I, you started talking about the padding and the sumo stuff, and I'm thinking... He could just be some ass-kicking grizzly bear, and that would be like a whole different thing. All right, so I'm so confused. And let me just grab a call from Ruben, and then I think I have a, call, a question for Les, and then we'll take a break. How's that sound? Uh, here's a Ruben in Farmington. Hi, Ruben. I'm actually a veteran ex-fur who has been in the fandom since it started back in the early 90s and late 80s or so. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's changed quite a bit from the original kind of gathering of people and in its inception and so on. Some of the things that uh, kind of pushed me away from the fandom after a while was just the some of the some of the people that are coming into the fandom now also have more of a predatory nature. It, and this goes more towards the sexual aspect of it. Um, I, you know, I've seen people who are confused in their sexual nature and so on and so forth get taken advantage by people who were there who were a little more sly 
And I won't lie to you, some of these conventions, a lot of people go there just to hook up. Mm -hmm. Others don't, but get dragged into something because they go with the flow. Mm -hmm. And this happens at a lot of the conventions. I mean, um, it it used to be, you know, back when I was going in the 80s and early 90s and so on, that it was more of a good-natured convention. You know, everybody had parties, um, you know, where you all just kind of, you know, hung out and talked and, you know... uh, Every once in a while, went in, went in, uh, in huge groups of 30 and 40 and 50 furs and raided the IHOP down the street at 3 o'clock in the morning. Where you, you know? probably didn't even stand out as the strangest person at the IHOP at 3 <laughs> in the morning. Um, let, me oh, just yeah. go back, let, me, let me go back <laughs> to what you're saying, though, Ruben, because uh, just, you know, in all fairness, uh, I've covered many national political conventions where uh, people also are hooking up. Uh, and it's like every convention. Convention and hooking up are like almost synonymous with the, the Venn diagram <laughs> circles oh, yeah. between those two concepts very closely overlap. So, I mean, I, I don't know, but it does sound a little bit. So that's not that unusual, I guess, is what I'm saying. I guess yeah, what you're saying is some people might be showing up innocently dressed as a skunk, not expecting to be it, to turn into some Discovery Channel thing exactly. with a exactly. But also, also you got to think about it. A lot of the people who go to these cons are some of you know more than like sixty uh, percent of them are like sixteen, seventeen, um, underage. Oftentimes, also being taken advantage of people who are over the age as well. Right. I would like to beg I, to differ. As director of registration at AnthroCon, I can answer that uh, the majority of AnthroCon attendees are from the ages of 18 to 30. Uh, there are young people at the conventions. Uh, this is why almost every convention has in place parental consent forms so that parents know that their children are going to be at the conventions. Most conventions encourage par- parents to come with their children as well. And I, w- I would argue that furries conventions still have a lot of that friendliness, a lot of that open aspect. And certainly every convention uh, that I know of, that I have attended, takes very good steps to ensure that uh, young folks are given a safe environment. There's a lot of, you know, no public displays of affection rules and such at conventions, lots of security presence in most conventions. Um, You know, will those sort of things happen? At conventions, yes. Uh, I could tell you stories about Mary Kay conventions that would curl your hair. But and they have a spay and neuter clinic at those things, <laughs> which you guys uh, haven't gotten to yet. Hey, we have to, we're going to have to take a quick break here in just a second. But I, I think your point's well taken, too, that there's lots of ways to set this up so it doesn't turn into that. And on the other hand, you got to, you know, be smart, I guess, uh, also, and not get uh, taken advantage of. But um, let's just, before we go to break, Les, I just, not so much in terms of what Ruben's talking about, but oh, unless you want to talk about that, but it, it seems like here all, of, all this library stuff and everything, too, it is, you know, these are people who have something they like to do, and, and most of them uh, do it very benignly. I don't know. How do, how do we fit them into society without it becoming this really uncomfortable thing where people have to make rules and stuff? I'm asking you to solve a gigantic social problem, which I, I don't <coughs> yeah, think you I really think volunteered you me, to. I think you asked me the wrong question. All right. uh, but Well, and then answer some other question. <laughs> but I think what the relevant part of this is that um, we live in a time when uh, almost all costumes are suspect because of um, terrorism, because of fear Mm. in society. I think libraries have become, especially children's libraries, have become a particularly uh, sacred place to try to protect children who are in there from uh, any predatory individual. So if somebody were to come in with a costume, uh, you know, and and a librarian wasn't suspect without having permission, I would be kind of concerned as a parent and a grandparent as to 
what they were doing. But uh, I, I also uh, uh, want to take issue with the every convention involves hookups. I mean, that's part of the convention mm. uh, schema. Right. So I don't think it's particular to any one uh, can, uh, group at all. All right. So we're going to conclude. That was a very profound answer. Thank uh, you. And uh, bigger than the question I even asked. So that was good. We have to take a quick break. We're, we're running short on time here. we got to talk to Camo. Grubbs has something else he wants to tell us. Ian and, Der- uh, Ian and Derek, they're online too. And uh, I don't know, we'll get to all, everybody if we can. We're back. I hope it's getting even more clear. And as I'm saying, that we did uh, decide to revive this show, which was done quite a few years ago, because furries are back in the news. Uh, there's a controversy in the town of New Milford about a former town councilman whose furry associations came out online, and that may have contributed to his being forced to resign. So we thought we would share this show with you. The realities of the furry movement haven't changed that much. thought you might like to know a little bit more about the people You might even know one and not know it, the people who call themselves furries. Okay, I changed costumes. Now I'm a very soft TV cat-like anchorman. Al Furzy. Boom. Today's show was produced by me, Patrick the Porcupine, and Betsy Catgirl. Our interns are Nina Ernest and Barbara Lipschey. The part of Bill Curry was played by Bill Curry in a purple bear suit. And now... Back to Colin. Uh, we're talking about furry fandom. With us in the studio, Dr. Les Lostein, uh, who's a lecturer in law and psychiatry at Yale University, among other things. Bob Chiaroscuro, that's a mongoose Armstrong, 20 years in furry fandom. He's on the Anthrocon Board of Directors. Stephanie Tabby-Wolf-Cruz, she's a freelance illustrator. Got a lot of people calling in here, too. Uh, we do have uh, a big convention coming up. And, and to, to Ruben's point, that's, I guess, one of the reasons you have to have present photo ID at the uh, at the Fur Fright Convention, Bob, right? So they know yep. how old you are and whether you need to have a parent with you. Ab- Stephanie, you were saying that you think the underage stuff just doesn't happen, right? Um, I'm not going to say it never happens because it's going to happen, like you said, at any convention, political conventions, architecture conventions, Mary Kay conventions. Stuff's going to happen where a 16-year-old goes in and something happens. But it happening, I would think, with the person not being willing is very, very slim at furry conventions. You guys are real careful, you're saying. Oh, yes. There's there's security staff. At every furry convention, those under 18 are issued minor badges. Uh, there are certain, certain things. In all furry conventions, there's usually an art show or a dealer's room where artists like uh, Stephanie are selling their wares. Some of those art contains nudity because art contains nudity now and then, and minors are not permitted to look at it. Permission slips are a big thing. Anthrocon's policy is that you have to have a permission slip up until the age of 18. We, it has to be signed by the parents and notarized as well. So mm-hmm. we're, we're very careful about our minors. There's a security team at Anthrocon of nearly 100 people every year, always very available. Sounds safer than the Boy Scouts. I, I was in the Boy Scouts. It wasn't safe. <laughs> the Boy Scouts uh, lately, um, well, no, let's even, not go there. Even even back in the old days. Uh, let's uh, go to uh, Camo in Connecticut. Been listening to the whole show online. So f- sorry I didn't get to you until now, Camo. But as you can tell, we have a lot of ground to cover here. You actually uh, know Bob. You're probably going to Fur Fright, and I think you're going in a fursuit, right? Yes, I do. Uh, what kind of animal are you? I had and have a couple of suits coming up. Um, I used to have this husky suit that was um, supposed to be like a typical college partier 
Um, right now I own a German Shepherd suit that's supposed to be like an adventurous kind of person. And then I'm waiting on a suit that's going to be made that's a corgi that is just obsessed with space. A corgi? A corgi. A corgi, obsessed with space, like an astronaut corgi. Yes, pretty much. Um, if you ever watch Cowboy Bebop, they actually have a corgi character on there. <laughs> and I think that corgis are like the perfect space animal. You know, just to sort of get back to that whole thing that we've been talking about all along here, when you're wearing one of these costumes, is it that you sort of feel like some aspect of your yourself can kind of come out a little bit more? I mean, what's what's the allure of doing all this? This is you're talking about some money too, as Grubbs pointed out. These costumes sometimes aren't cheap, so why is it worth doing? Well, I mean, you get you get a chance to be somewhat something that you're not. Mm-hmm. I mean, like I like I mentioned before, I just mentioned three different characters with three different personalities, all of which are not exactly me. And I just, you know, you're just given this chance to be something else that you're not. Bigger and larger than life character. These are great points. You know, Les, you were sort of saying off the air, this again goes back to childhood, that this is... You know, something that all of us really, almost to a person, did when we were little kids, when our identities were more fungible and tradable uh, than the locked-in things they turn into. Yeah, and I think what happens is those um, early childhood experiences turn into unconscious choices later in life about what kind of furry we want to be, what kind of person we want to be, our adventuresomeness, dealing with shyness by putting on a uh, gorilla outfit and and whatever. But I think that the, um, the uh, unconscious choices are that we all become the furry we think we deserve. Hmm. Let me grab a phone call from Ian here. Uh, he's been on hold for a bit. Ian in Manchester. Hi, Ian. Hi. I actually had a comment that related to what we were just talking about. I got into the, the furry scene before I knew what it was. Early in childhood, my favorite movies were Disney's Robin Hood, Mrs. Frisbee and the Rats of Nim, Amer- an American tale with these very anthropomorphized animal characters who I identified with very strongly. And uh, as I grew in, up and entered into my early teens and discovered the Internet, I found other people in the same fandom. And I got onto the muck scene, where I've been for the past 15 years uh, role-playing online as different characters with a standby fox persona. But the thing that goes that back I to found, your Robin Hood thing, right? Because wasn't Robin Hood a fox? Yep. Yeah, yeah, Robin Hood was a fox. All right. Go ahead, press on. Like, no, continue. My girlfriend is actually uh, also a furry, uh, but we have to stay very closeted. What we found over the past decade or so is that the furry scene was really kind of evolving into a more public thing, and then MTV ran a special where that sort of exposed the underground sex life of the furry fandom. And ever since that, for years afterwards, as soon as you let slip that you were a furry, the immediate assumption was that you were... Your, your first and foremost concern was going to be dragging the next person you talk to into a dungeon with all manner of devicery. And, and so, in other words, this is the kind of thing where this is something you really love to do, your girlfriend loves to do it, but if I worked with you at the next cubicle, I just wouldn't know that you were doing that, right? Right, uh, which is strange because lots of other aspects of my nerdy personality do show. I go to anime conventions, I cosplay in anime and steampunk costumes, but the one I have to hide for social and professional reasons is the furry aspect. Which is sort of weird because it's the least edgy of the things that you just named in a lot of ways, but it just somehow it got defined somehow. That's sort of what you're saying, right? Right. As soon as you let it out, that's it, the, the first and immediate thought is uh, a lot of people come back to that MTV special even now. 
All right. Um, I, we're going to have to wrap this up, unfortunately. I, we could obviously do a, a whole other hour uh, on this. So I want to thank Les Lostein for being with us. Also, uh, Stephanie Cruz, uh, Bob Armstrong, all the people who called up, Grubbs Grizzly and Camo. Uh, thank you in particular, but uh, everybody called up. Great story, Ian, by the way. And we'll be back tomorrow. So I keep you in the backyard in a wooden hutch. Cause you're getting to be a little too much Like Bugs Bunny You're getting to be a rabbit with me I feel like something's switching It's all so strange and new He can't, my nose is twitching I'm a rabbit too I'm getting to be a rabbit Hippity hop, I love you I'm getting to be a rabbit like you I'm Kyone Wolf, dressed in jeans and a button-down shirt and a jacket, and my wolf suit sucks.